The ancient Hebrew prophets Amos and Joel delivered their messages from different time periods, places, and even in a different style. But those messages are shockingly similar in themes, content, and in their overarching awe and wonder at the incredible plan of God. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to our broadcast this week for episode number 35, God Reveals His Secrets to His Prophets. As always, if you want to contact the show, please email us at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. We'll answer your questions as part of the broadcast. Uh, And I wanted to also uh, announce that we have found a location for our live event, which will be happening Thursday the 20th. And that is 2535 Newcastle Drive in Sandy. So please, uh, please let us know uh, via email if you need directions finding that. But uh, hopefully you can, if you have a smartphone, you can look that up or on the internet and then uh, join us for our live event. The title of that event, again, is The Six Antecedents of Isaiah. So that'll be a live event in which we discuss ways that you can think about the book of Isaiah in order to make it more fun, more understandable, and try to put yourself in the head and in the mindset of a, an ancient Hebrew. We can talk a little bit about what Isaiah had in mind as he, as he wrote some of the things that seem difficult to understand. Well, in this broadcast, we're discussing the, the, prophet, the prophetic works of Amos and Joel, and these two prophets are very similar in that they were both totally caught up and in developed by this idea of the day of the Lord, the day when God would combat evil and destroy it. Um, so we'll talk first about Amos, who I think would belong, if, if I were arranging the lessons, I think I would put Amos in the same lesson as Hosea, because it's, it's surprisingly similar. Same time frame, same king of northern Israel, Jehoshaph, uh, sorry, uh, Jeroboam II, and the, the most wicked king, some would say, the prophets would say, of all, uh, northern or southern, the, a kingdom who brought the, not only idolatry, but worship of the, the Philistine and surrounding gods into Israelite mainstream. So he was so wicked that Amos left his home in, in the southern kingdom of Judah and traveled north and spent the rest of his days there prophesying against the people of Israel and telling them how terrible the things they were doing. Um, the, the first chapter is, um, but both Amos and Joel are, are just really focusing on this idea that God is going to not forgive the evil that he sees around them, and especially among Israel. So we'll talk first about Amos. He's he talks about three for three sins and for four, I will not forgive the nation surrounding Israel. And going one by one, he almost draws a circle or even a target around Israel and 
says, this nation, this nation, this nation will not be forgiven for their sins. But then when he talks about Israel, spends a lot longer talking about their sins. And their particular sins were first idolatry, the sin of worshiping these these gods of um, Asherah or Ashtoreth, as we've as we've discussed, the god of the goddess of sex, Anat, the god of war, and Baal, the god of the weather. These idolatrous gods whose worship involved more sin, but also the the sin of forgetting the poor, neglecting the poor, and then allowing them to fall into so much debt or into debt slavery that they could buy and sell them for a pair of shoes or for a pittance. They could own people, and then they would leave them there for the rest of their lives in this slavery without any representation, without anyone to speak for them. So these, this was the, these were the sins of Israel, and then they would pretend to worship. They would be very faithful in their worship of God, but treat each other horribly. So they'd show up for their sacrifices. And this was, this disgusted Amos. And Amos said, even said, went so far as to say that God hated their worship. And so he, there was a priest in northern Israel who told Amos, we don't want you around here. Why don't you, why don't you get lost? And Amos said, no, I'm never going to stop talking about the day of the Lord. With a day when God will arrive and visit judgment upon his people. So in chapters 1 and 2, Amos contrasts, compares and contrasts the nation surrounding Israel with Israel itself and the the terrible sins that they're doing. And, And he asks the question, is this the nation that started out as slaves in Egypt? The, the very nation that is taking their own and making them slaves. So the point he's making is, you what you're doing is worse, is made worse by the fact that you were once in this very position and now you're doing it to yourselves. You're doing it to each other. And how can you do something to each other that sort of defined you as a people? This The very suffering that brought you together, that made you one and set you apart from the rest of the world. Now you do to each other. Now do you do. Now you do to our, yourselves. And then in chapter three, Amos starts talking about why God will bring the day of the Lord. And uh, the day of the Lord is this idea that has several fulfillments. And this is a this is a concept that will develop over the next several podcasts, and not, if not the rest of the year, which is that. The ideas of the prophets in the Old Testament, the, these prophecies, but even just their teachings, can have more than one fulfillment. Can be, they can be talking about several things at once, quite often two things at once, but it can go up to a handful, five or six things, five or six fulfillments, five or six metaphors at the same time. And this is why sometimes it's difficult to understand because you're not sure what they're talking about, and that's the reason why. So um, the day of the Lord is a good example, and we'll talk about several fulfillments when we when we discuss Joel in a few minutes. But um, in chapter three, Amos begins by saying, "I chose Israel to be the example to the nation." So you remember this idea that the the people of ancient Israel. The Jews were meant to be the shining light of what it 
what it could look like when an entire nation of people worshiped God and were a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But that, that is why God will punish them for their sins even more than he would the other nations. If you, the, this, this specialness that you have, this, this peculiarity of being my peculiar treasure, it makes it so that I have to punish you and hold you accountable to a greater extent than every other nation on earth. So in uh, chapter 3, now, of course, we have the famous verse in all of, the most famous verse in Amos, which is Amos chapter 3, verse 7. And this is, anyone who served a mission will remember this verse because you would quote it every, every time you taught uh, a discussion but, uh, or a, the discussions to someone. Um, but surely God, surely the Lord God will do nothing save he shall first reveal his secret to his servants, the prophets. Now, the theme that Amos is developing in chapter 3 is the, this theme of righteousness and justice. So he's talking about the fact that um, is, you Israelites, you've been plugging your ears as if, and then you complain as if you've never heard that these things are coming. The day of the Lord is, is coming, and this is a big surprise to you. But the idea of that verse is that, no, of course it's not a surprise. When God does something this big, and, and this verse was never meant to convey that, that God reveals every little thing that will happen. It's, that would be impossible. All of us, God is operating in all of our lives every day. And those little things can't be revealed by the prophets. However, when God is going to work on his people, when he's going to accomplish a great work, and especially when he's going to bring about the day of the Lord, He's going to reveal it. This, this will not come as a surprise unless you've just cho- chosen to believe that those who have been called to be prophets are not prophets. And we see a lot of evidence, a lot of fulfillments of that idea today. When the prophets speak or those who are representing them speak, and then um, people say, well, they shouldn't talk about that. And there's nothing new about that. Amos talked about that, that this is the context. You know, you take a verse out of context and you lose a little bit of the meaning. This is the context of that verse when he was talking about prophets, which is that people were saying, oh, we're, we don't believe that that person is a prophet or why, why did God pull this, pull a fast one on us and do this by surprise, bring these consequences by surprise. And Amos is saying, no, he doesn't, he doesn't work that way. You had plenty of warning. And so he's talking here about warning the Israelites and these two ideas of righteousness and justice. So righteousness to the ancient Hebrews carried a connotation that included other people. Righteousness meant the, re- the relationships that you have with your fellow man and with God were in harmony with God's will. And then justice, so the, and righteousness was tzedakah, this, this Hebrew uh, concept that when you were righteous, you were right with God. You were right with your fellow man. Justice, mish, mishpat. And these two ideas are related because justice meant you are doing actions in your life that create righteousness, that create these right relationships. 
So justice are the actions that lead to, to righteousness, that lead to relationships that are in harmony. So we think when we think of justice, we think of the legal system, perhaps. Or we think of the justice of God that visits the consequences of evil onto the perpetrators of evil. And they were their understanding of those two words is just a little different. So we think of righteousness today, we might think of someone who cares about God and is, you know, at home praying or remembers the commandments. And that's a big part of it. But uh, that was that would have been a big part of it for them, but it would have also included their fellow man. And then justice, a little bit different. It means any action that would bring about that that relationship with God and your fellow man. So one of the contrasts that God draws here in chapter 3 is the the contrast between worshiping these idols, the, the kind of idolatry that the Israelites are engaging in, which leads them to all kind of sin. And then in uh, verse 4, now we're, let's skip forward a little bit to chapter 5. In verse 4, God talks about seeking Yahweh, seeking the Lord. That is the same as seeking good. So in you can compare verses chapter 5, verses 4 and 14, where he talks about you should seek the Lord, you should seek to do good. He's saying, I am the only God who is good. And in fact, in English, they didn't have the same words that we do. In English, the word God comes from good. And this is one of the reasons why. That it's not an accident that the word God means good. That is an idea that comes from the Hebrew scriptures. And this is, this is one of those places. So um, the, the word God had its origin in an idea that we got from the, the Old Testament and partially from the book of Amos. Now, Amos, Amos's whole idea is that because Israel and its king have rejected God and the prophets, then eventually this foreign power is going to sweep in and destroy them. So you'll remember from the story of Jonah, he has this uh, he has this idea that the Assyrians, this terrible power from, from Hosea, but also from Amos, that they're going to be destroyed. And so that's why he hates the idea of going to Nineveh and helping them to repent. And this is the beginning of the discussion of the, the day of the Lord. Amos talks about he first talks about the near-term day of the Lord, which is um, that a foreign power is going to come and destroy them. But then he talks about a far future day of the Lord, where locusts and fire, and they're swallowed up like overripe fruit. And he uses the, you'll remember when we, in our lesson of Jonah, we talked about how you're either high up on a mountain, or you can be, the deepest you can get is underwater. And he talks about the wrath of God coming, coming upon, or the consequences of sin coming upon the nation of Israel like a flood. And floods are on our minds as a, as a nation to, today because of the terrible floods that are happening in the eastern United States. I mean, you can, you can look at pictures on the news of people whose houses are underwater or people who are surrounded by water and unable to get anywhere. 
So we have, that's a very vivid image for us today. But that was for the ancient Hebrews. That was, the very idea of hell was some place that was underwater, was as deep as you could get. And so God was saying, in some far future day, we're, you're going to be covered by a flood. And a flood and a famine went together. So the other very notable scripture in, in Amos is uh, this idea that in the, in the future day, in chapter 8, verse 11, you're gonna, there's going to be a famine in the coming day, not of food or of water, not a, not a famine of food or a, or a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. So eventually, you're going to reject the prophets so many times that there are going to be no more prophets among you. And this is a prophecy that has had several fulfillments. In fact, it, uh, it was true immediately. It was true as soon as the Assyrians carried the Israelites away. They didn't have prophets anymore, and they had a big thirst for hearing the word of the Lord. But it was also true between the two testaments, between the, fir- uh, the Old and the New Testament, it was true after the Romans carried the Jews away and destroyed the ancient nation of Israel. Um, and from an, from an LDS perspective, it was true from the time of the death of the apostles until the restoration of the gospel. But even the Jews and the Christians would see several examples of a great apostasy during the, during the history in the period covered by the scriptures. And then, of course, uh, the the readers of the those who believe in modern day revelation would would say that God has not had prophets upon the earth in the sense that He did in the Old Testament since the time between the time of the the end of the New Testament until the restoration. And this is um, this is the other scripture that is pointed to in Amos so often is that scripture of likening uh, an apostasy to a famine. So God is talking about, or Amos is talking about, the day of the Lord, which is when God visits the consequences, when finally he comes to the earth with the consequences of sin and visit them in a way that can't be denied by anyone. Well, he talks about that in the near term, and then he talks about this far future day of the Lord. And the, he uses the imagery of, these, of the locusts, the fire, as we mentioned. But finally, uh, Amos leaves us with a little bit of hope, and he says, one day God will come to back to earth and rebuild the family of God's people. And he talks about how the house of David will be rebuilt. The, the land will never be taken away from the children of Israel again. And, they'll, and God will smile upon them and, and bring them into blessedness and create this uh, everlasting peace and abundance. And this, this is where we start studying the, the idea of the latter days. So, as we, as we mentioned last time, the Israelites at this point were seeing themselves sort of right before what we would think of as the millennium. Because the prophets are talking about, they, no prophet can ever talk about what the judgments that God will bring upon them without talking, without immediately then seeing what God will eventually do. And so, um, since the time of David, 
the Israelites are caught up with the, this idea uh, that God will one day live among them. There will, there will be this powerful ruler and there will be no more war. There will be no more sickness. There will be abundance and peace. And they're thinking that what, what that would mean would be God would stop sending famine. There would be plenty of rain. He would rebuke all the nations surrounding them and a king would arise that would be as wise as Solomon. And not that the entire earth would be covered in the worship of God, but that their immediate surroundings, the nations that they know about, would be conquered and would all come to the worship of Jehovah. So this was their idea. And, you know, it was in, it's interesting to think that we might be just as wrong as they were about how how close, I shouldn't say how close we are, because obviously every day that goes by brings us one day closer to the next day of the Lord. But the idea that the next thing that would happen would be this their arrival in this blessed state. And obviously the prophecies that were coming had several fulfillments, the prophecies of suffering, and then even the prophecy of the Messiah that would come, this Davidic king that would arise and rule over them, had, a, had its fulfillment first in the life of Christ in which he was extremely humble, and then would centuries later have its fulfillment again. So as we look for the fulfillment of the prophecies of God, is it, uh, we know that there will be another fulfillment of this idea of the the day of the Lord before the second fulfillment of this arising of the the Messiah. But the the ancient Hebrew prophets, as soon as they started prophesying, then they're caught up in this amazing this description of this amazing time when God will live among the people. So let's let's now move to the oh and I should mention that Amos, you can read Amos if you Again, it makes it so much easier to read it in a different translation, but even in the King James Version, you can read Amos in less than a half an hour. So as we, as we cover these books, if you're following along, and the, the lesson won't always assign the entire book as part of the reading, you can read the entire Old Testament as we're as we're studying all of these things, and we there will be several books that we don't cover, and you can pick those up in a couple of hours at the end or a few days at the very most. But over the course of this year, if you've been following along, you will have read the entire Old Testament, which is by far the most difficult of the standard works to finish, and um, what a if you've never done that before, what a worthwhile accomplishment that is to, to read all of the scriptures, all of the standard works. So now let's talk about Joel. And again, this is the compilation of the life's work of one of the prophets. And here's something interesting about Joel. We don't know when the book of Joel was written because he doesn't talk about any particular sins. So like Amos, he's concerned with the day of the Lord, this, this time of reckoning when God will visit the sins of the people upon their heads. But Joel doesn't say what that sin is. However, we have some indications by the fact that Joel makes reference to or you know, has allusions to concepts or even specific passages 
mentioned by several prophets and then even quotes some others. And so we can make a guess as to when Joel came along. We can guess that Joel came um, after Isaiah, after Ezekiel, after Zephaniah, Nahum, and, and certainly um, Amos, but possibly even Malachi. Now, that's interesting because Malachi is widely considered to be the latest of the Old Testament prophets and is often put last. Um, in the Jewish scriptures, by the way, the, the book of Chronicles is put last. But uh, So Malachi is put last because he talks about things that are chronologically last. However, it, it could be true that, that Joel is actually the last of the Old Testament prophets. However, he's not, he's not specifically talking about any of the sins of Israel. He's talking about a sinful life in general. And then he's talking about how God will visit the Israelites in judgment. So, like Amos, Joel talks about a near-term day of the Lord. And it almost seems like he's talking about, well, the first, the first thing he talks about is something that's the recent past. And he says, he's, he's describing uh, a, one of the plagues of Egypt, but it's being visited this time upon the children of Israel. And uh, interestingly enough, in latter-day history, we have an example of this plague as well. It's the plague of locusts. So, and he says, whatever the locust swarm leaves behind, the great locusts will eat. And whatever the great locusts leave behind, the lesser locusts, and then this young locusts, and then finally the others. They're going to take everything. The locusts will come. There will be so many of them, and they will never stop. And whatever you think is left is going to be gone. In other words, they will leave the land barren and desolate. It will be utterly destroyed. Or I, I shouldn't say will be. It seems like this has recently happened, and perhaps it had to the, to the Israelites. And because of the destruction, then everyone gets the idea that it might be a good idea to return to God and repent. And so Joel calls upon them to repent, and at the end he's pleading for his people. And by the end, I mean the end of chapter 1. So chapter 1 of Joel is kind of talking about the past, that God can bring this day of the Lord, this day of reckoning. But then in chapter 2, he talks about a day of the Lord in the near future, this army. And it the imagery that is used to describe the army of God, and it's not uh, necessarily an army that is going to be um, the Assyrians. It's definitely not the Assyrians because it's described as never stopping. They, they march like locusts and they, or an invading army of ants. They, you can't even tell the difference between, at, from a distance between one and the, other, and the person next to them and no walls will even slow them down. They're always in formation, and they, they march right in over battlements, through windows, through closed doors, and it's obvious that, we're ta- the, that Joel is talking here about some sort of invading army of angels, and it's the army of God, and nothing can stop them. And wickedness, any wicked people will, will be utterly destroyed before them. They will leave nothing behind them. They, uh, they have this earthquake and fire that attends them. And so you'll remember that in, uh, in Amos, 
he uses these images as well, the image of locusts and fire, and then being swallowed up, being utterly destroyed and wasted. And so in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 13, then again, Joel calls upon them to repent. Now, the book of Joel is fascinating. It, it, it almost seems like it has a double parallelism where there's something that's repeated twice and then uh, those two repetitions are repeated again but switched around. So first we have this locust swarm and then there's the destruction that it leaves behind it and the, and the call for repentance and then the acts of repentance, which is Joel praying to God to remove this, um, to remove this plague. Then the, the locusts are replaced by this army of, of angels, of destroyers. And again, Joel calling upon the people of Israel to repent and find, or telling them to repent and then finally repenting himself, pleading with God, re, um, representing his own repentance and the repentance that they will have. But then the middle of chapter 2, you have this response from God. And God says, I'm going to drive the armies that surround you away, which is interesting because they are the armies of God. They're not an earthly army. But he talks about when, when God says, I'm going to drive the armies that surround you away, he is talking about earthly armies. And he's also saying, when you repent in this, in this coming day, so up until now, we've been talking about the near future. God is going to send this army upon you. They're going to visit your sins upon you. This day of the Lord is going to come soon. But then, and then, and then God says, I'll rescue you from this near-term day of the Lord. And it's not even clear in verses 20 and 21 of, of Joel chapter 2 whether God is talking about the near-term or the locusts, or this, or, or invading army. Which is he going to save us from? The the two destroying forces are seen as very similar. And then in verses twenty two through twenty six, God talks about the restoration. What will happen to the land that has been destroyed? All this desolation that was visited upon the the wicked will be turned into abundance. And finally, in verse twenty seven. The divine presence, the Shekinah, will be will be there among the people. Of the, the, there'll be people surrounding the temple, and God will be there with them. And so, first, there's first Joel talks about the past, and we have this idea of uh, an invading army, and then a call to repentance and an act of repentance, and then the near future, and then God's response in the near future. All three of those things are repeated in the near future. And then God responds to them in the near future. And finally, we have the, this idea of the far future. And again, the prophet is just caught up in the vision of the latter day glory that will come. So, first of all, he talks about how the nation surrounding and the whole world almost will be, will be pulled into this valley of Jehoshaphat. And um, again, you'll remember that Hosea, one of the children of Hosea, was named Jezreel. So it's another name for this valley of Armageddon, where um, the the final decision will be reached uh, about who is in charge on the earth. 
And this is one of the the very notable verses in Joel, which is um, Joel chapter 3, verse 13. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And this is a fun verse to think about, um, obviously metaphorically, because we're all of us in this valley of decision. And you can, anytime you have a decision to make, you can think of yourself as one of the multitudes. You're in, you're in the valley of decision. But the valley of decision is not, I have to make a decision. Uh, as the, In the obvious interpretation, in the surface level, it's, we're going to make a decision by seeing who comes out stronger. And the, the answer, according to all the prophets, is the conclusion is foregone. God is going to come out stronger. So the valley of decision really is, which, which side of this battle would you like to be on, knowing who's going to win in advance? The answer would seem so obvious that you would want to be on the winning side. But when you look at the two forces arrayed against each other, he describes all of these forces coming in that, are, that look way more powerful. And that's, that's kind of um, a, a really good spiritual metaphor because you look at wickedness in the world and it seems so much more attractive. It seems so much more powerful. It seems like it has so much more to offer because the rewards for making a decision to be on the side of God don't come right away. They, they maybe don't look like they're connected to good acts. Um, and maybe you never see those rewards in this life. And you have to choose to believe that God really, it, it, that God is real and that he can reward you after you're dead. But the, that is the valley of decision. Another uh, notable verse in Joel, when he talks about, this is uh, Joel 2, 2 28. Your sons and your, and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. He's talking about this, this future day. But he's also talking about the, the, that's kind of the near future divine presence will be upon your people. So after the valley of decision, then God's spirit will be upon all the earth. So it's almost as if in the final, and you'll remember there were three aspects to what what happens. The army comes in, then there's a call for, they leave desolation behind them, then there's a call for repentance, and then there's acts of repentance. This happens in the recent past, in the near future. And then God's response to what he's, how he's going to respond to each of those acts. And in the far, and then he responds again, but this time God is talking about the far future. And Joel is prophesying about the latter days. And when that happens, then the fulfillment, the, the order of the fulfillment is changed. And God first talks about, or Joel first talks about, the spirit being upon the people. So he goes right from, this near-term fulfillment, the, the presence of God will be among you. You'll all be able to worship at the, around the temple to the presence of God will be in every person. Your, your young men will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your sons and your daughters will all be. Every single person will be a temple in the sense that God will dwell within all of us. And that is the first thing that will happen. And then God will confront evil. So instead of 
that being the final thing, God confronts evil, and then there's desolation, and then there's repentance, and then finally God rewards his people with his presence. No, the first thing that will happen is that every person becomes like a temple in that God, they're, they're the house of the Lord. And then God confronts evil among all the nations. We meet in this valley of decision. And then there's this new Eden, this new creation. So when you think about, uh, the, and so the book of Joel is this amazing parallelism, but it's only it's only organized that way to draw our attention to the great parallelism of God's plan, which is that the creation of God began in this paradise on earth where, and and you'll have to go back to the book of Genesis in, in chapter three, I believe, and, and read about how Adam was called upon and Eve were called upon to reign over the earth, to rule the earth in righteousness. And the parallelism that exists between that initial creation and the final creation, it will be a new Eden, except instead of just two people, it will be everyone, the entire earth, the people that God has called the nation of Israel to represent him, will rule over the earth in righteousness. And they will finally have accomplished this goal that God has had for the earth all along, which is that the the creations of the earth will be subdued and and this is kind of the what God was talking about with Adam when he says uh, take stewardship over the things the, of the earth rule over it and subdue it not meaning uh, destroy the earth exploit the environment pollute and uh, th- waste and throw away but but make all of the things of the earth good for man and take take advantage of the blessings that I've given you without taking them for granted. That all of those promises will be fulfilled in the latter days and the, the millennial time will resemble the Garden of Eden. So with these two amazing books of prophecy, we can see where the Jews were getting at this time, were getting their idea that number one, they're meant to be a, a people that is separate, that they know that they're going, they're starting to get the idea that they're going to be scattered. And perhaps the nation of Judah doesn't quite get this yet, but soon enough they will. Enough prophets will, will share this idea. They know they're going to be scattered. They know that God is going to watch out for them. And the, it, it's not really, to me, it seems like it, it can't have been that comforting to know that God is thousands of years later going to look out for your descendants and bring them back together. They're thinking that God is going to scatter them and then bring them back in the lifetime of the people who are scattered. That actually happens, we'll talk about very soon, uh, after, after we discuss Isaiah, we're going to talk about with Daniel, um, within a few generations, the, the children of Judah are brought back into Israel. And so, just like with the day of the Lord, these prophecies have more than one fulfillment. So they're, they're scattered, and then they're gathered back to their land. They're scattered again, gathered back to their land each time they're conquered. But they're also spiritually scattered, 
and they're also brought back in the latter days. None of the prophets, none of the ancient prophets, could go for very long without talking about the wonderful time in which God would be among his people, be in all of their hearts, and then visit them with the kind of blessedness that be, with which the entire creation began. And that's what makes studying the Old Testament so exciting, is because we live in the time that these prophets could not keep their eyes off of. We live in the time when the blessings are beginning to be fulfilled that have been talked about for thousands of years. When, these, when the idea of the righteousness and justice of God filling the earth, flowing like a river, are starting to come about. And we have the tools that we need again. We have prophets on the earth again. We have the, the plain and precious things that these prophets had given to their people. We have them restored in the form of the Book of Mormon again. And so we live in a time. This, this is why it's so fun to read these ancient prophets talking about how blessed the people in the latter days will be. We live in a time when we no longer have this famine upon the earth, this earth, this thirst of hearing the word of the Lord. We get to experience all of these wonderful blessings. And we also get to look forward to those things that are yet to come. And so as we study the prophets, these are two wonderful prophetic works, but for the rest of the year now, we'll be, we'll be discussing the prophets. And I, I mean that in the sense that the Hebrews understand it, which is that the the Bible is divided up into sections that contain the Torah and the writings and then the prophets. We are discussing what the prophets talked about, what they looked forward to, and what they were concerned with among their own people, what we can be concerned with. And we can see ourselves now in this, in this grand development of the story of the creation of God. And as we'll discuss, as we'll discuss tomorrow night, or... Uh, I should say Thursday night, the 20th, as we'll discuss, these ideas all have multiple fulfillments. And the six antecedents of Isaiah are really the antecedents of all the prophets. When they talk about the fulfillments that will occur, there are so many parallels of the life of this, the history of this nation of Israel and our own spiritual existence. That's what Nephi meant when he said that I will liken the scriptures unto us that it might be for our profit and learning. This is why we're studying the prophets is because the history of Israel is our own spiritual journey. And the, the crowning day when this messianic king comes and restores the earth is what can happen with us every day as we let Christ into our hearts and allow him to change us into a paradise within our own soul, with our own, within our own spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.